You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today on the pod, our producer Grant Stern interviews Forbes' indomitable reporter, Dan Alexander, whose new book with Penguin Random House, entitled White House Inc., How Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business, is on the bookshelves right now. Alexander is truly a part of Forbes' proudest tradition of excellence in business reporting. Dan's a graduate of Brown, who started as an intern there only seven years ago, and is today a senior editor. For anyone who followed Trump's career starting in the 1980s through the present, you've got to have some awareness of the outsized role Forbes magazine has always played in his public image, often his public myth-making, and recently in his public exposure. The globally renowned Forbes 400 list and its annual rankings of the wealthiest billionaires in America attracted Donald Trump like a moth to an especially bright flame. Of course, he lied vociferously to Forbes, whose journalists 30 years ago were far more credulous about the promoter's claims. Over the last decade, though, Forbes has exposed a truly significant amount of the deals Donald Trump is trying to hide, including videos from Moscow and reporting on his dealings there. And led by Dan Alexander, they have come to an accounting of what is really happening with the vast but opaque Trump organization. White House Inc. is at its heart a business book, but one that uses painstaking detail and lots of sweat off the author's brow to uncover foreign payments to Trump routed through indirect sources. Those payments violate the president's oath to follow the Constitution and its nebulous emoluments clause. Dan Alexander's book is so detailed, but it uses those details to draw some amazing big picture conclusions and in the process gives some contour to what it means to have a very corrupt president in the White House. Take a listen to our interview. I'm here with Dan Alexander. He wrote White House Inc., How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the pod today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start by giving our listeners an overview of what they'll find in White House Inc., just a 30,000-foot perspective about the book and why you wrote it as an extension of what you're doing as a journalist covering Donald Trump at Forbes magazine. Sure. So basically, the book is a political book because it deals with Donald Trump, but it's really a business book. If you want to understand the intrigues of the White House, there are other places to do that. If you want to understand the president's finances and what his business is doing, what's doing well, what's doing poorly, this is where you can get that picture. What we find is that we didn't know whether Trump's business was going to do well from him being president or whether that was going to be a difficult thing for his business because nobody had ever kept a billion dollar business and brought it into the White House. And now we can see the results of that experiment unfolding. And not only has it been difficult for Trump politically, obviously, because of a lot of ethical questions and that sort of thing. But from a business perspective, it was a bad bet to hold on to his business. Had he just sold and reinvested into the S&P 500, for example, the last time that I counted, which was a couple of weeks ago, uh, he would be $800 million richer today than having done what he did, which is hang on to his business and expose it to everything that comes with having the president be the owner of your business. Well, I want to take you back to kind of day one, even before day one, uh, when Donald Trump held a press conference and stood there with stacks of mostly empty paper saying that he was going to divest. Isn't that the core of the tension here between Donald Trump's businesses and the White House, that there's effectively become a merger of the two since he took office? 
You know, the issue is in that press conference that you're referencing, there were a lot of promises made. And over the next couple of years, there were a lot of promises broken. I mean, you know, they said that they were going to hand over the management of the business, not the ownership, not the money, but, you know, the responsibility on a day-to-day basis, the chores of it, (laughs) to Trump's kid. And that Trump wasn't going to talk with his kids about that business. You know, I was inside Trump Tower about a month after that, speaking with Eric Trump in his office. And I asked him about that. And, and he told me flat out that he planned to update his father on the financials of the business. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago in the New York Post, Donald Trump was talking about the plan that they had to sell the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. And he was describing this in ways that made it clear that, or suggested that he was involved in that decision whether to sell it and then whether to pull it off the market, which they ultimately did once the coronavirus deflated values of hotels so so much. So yes, Trump is still involved in the ownership of the business, but there are also legitimate questions about uh, his involvement in the details of the business. And it wasn't just that promise that went by the wayside. You know, they said that they were going to do no new foreign deals. They did foreign deals. They said that an ethics advisor was going to review all new transactions. The Trump Organization lawyer later told me that an ethics advisor was not reviewing a lot of the transactions. So promise, but, but let me, promise but, didn't actually play out. Let, let me break in here for our listeners, though, and explain the point of these ethics rules that they're skirting and breaking and, and what they're trying to prevent so that people understand that this isn't just, well, he had a business, he took office, so he's got to run the business. I don't think that everybody understands why these ethics rules exist and what they're supposed to prevent. Yeah. So the idea of, you know, ethics in politics is that, you know, there's a lot of money at stake and a lot of people's lives at stake and wars at stake and a lot of big issues. And we don't want the people who are making those decisions to be conflicted between the decision that they're making that could that will affect over 300 million people and how it might affect one person themselves. And so for everyone in the executive branch, when they join the government, they have to get rid of all of the interests that would potentially conflict with their job. But there's an exception to that, which is that the president and the vice president are not subject to that same requirement. And that's why Donald Trump was able to hold on to his businesses even though it was against precedent, you know, all of his predecessors had acted like the rules applied to them anyways. But he didn't want to do that and he held on to his business and therefore opened up, you know, this marketplace where anyone could pay him, you know, lobbyists, big companies, foreign governments, you know, people looking for political favor. Anyone, if you want to pay him, walk into his hotel. You know, if you want to pay him more, buy a condo from him. You want to pay even more, lease some office space from it. This stuff is all going on constantly. And, you know, the trick of the book was to figure out how we pick this stuff apart and figure out where this money's coming from and what that all means. Well, that's a great example you gave there. And it's actually something you start the book with, which is the example of what's coming out of Doha, Qatar, which is a small emirate of about 330,000 people located in the Persian Gulf. By by your reporting, it's the second wealthiest nation in the world with 77% more gas reserves than all of the United States. And the example you gave is 
that they rented office space in a building that is 30% owned by Donald Trump. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about like what you had to do to find that out and then to report the story out? Because I think that it's a great place to start. And then I've got plenty of follow-ups because I've heard <laughs> about Cutter myself. All right, good, good. So, you know, the president does not have to disclose who his tenants are. He has to say to federal ethics officials where he's, which companies are paying him money, but he doesn't have to say which companies are paying those companies money. <laughs> so it's a loophole that allows him to take in enormous sums of money from lots and lots of different places uh, without any disclosure. And so what I want to do is figure out where all that money is actually coming from. And so I went through property by property and looked to try to see who the tenants were. And I found a document that was sort of like the holy grail that I'd been missing that listed all of the tenants inside Trump's two hardest to access buildings, which were 1290 Avenue of the Americas in New York City and 555 California Street in San Francisco. These are actually Donald Trump's two most valuable buildings in his entire portfolio. And they have a lot of tenants paying a lot of money. And I saw on this document that one of the tenants was the Qatar Investment Authority. And my eyes about popped out of my head because I'd never heard of this. And the Qatar Investment Authority is a sovereign wealth fund that basically acts as an arm of the Qatari government. If it's like a hedge pick, fund. It's like a hedge fund yeah. owned by the Qatari government. That's a the good right. way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. They invest in all sorts of stuff, you know. But so if you were to picture a tenant who would be a, a problem for a president to have, you know, one of the top five names that you would come up with would be the Qatar Investment Authority. So I, I had to try to figure out, okay, is this real? Is, is what this document says right? And so I booked a trip to California, and I knew that they were supposed to be on the 43rd floor. And there's a bunch of security in the bottom of the building. And there are different elevator banks. And on, I think it was the 49th floor, there was a co-working space that rents, you know, offices to people who need to use them for a day or a week or whatever. Oh, I so love I, co-working. It's great. Yeah, it used to yeah. be. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so this is in December of, of last year, to be clear. So so I I book a, a desk here and at this co-working space and I get past the security that way. And I take the elevator down a few flights to the 43rd floor. And I didn't know what I was going to see. And the elevator doors open. I take a left. And before me is like this beautiful office space, you know, glass walls, and there's these beautiful, pristine gray couches that are, you know, decorated with red pillows and a nice, you know, marble looking countertop on the right side with two computers where receptionists could sit. And beyond them, it said Qatar Investment Authority on the wall. And I was like, wow, it really is happening. But the strangest thing was that there was no one there. There was no one at the reception desk behind those computers. There was no one in the conference rooms, the glass walls I could see through into a lot of the office. I walked to other entrances. There was no one in other parts of the office. I knocked as hard as I could. There were glass doors. So I didn't want to break them, but I knocked as hard as I could without breaking the things or without threatening to break it. I'm not suggesting that I'm strong enough to break it, with, you know, but whatever. I was trying not to do damage to the place. And, uh, and no one answered. 
I ended up coming back the next day at a different time thinking, you know, maybe their hours are just strange. Uh, same thing. Nobody answered. And so then, you know, your mind starts connecting the dots. You know, here is a foreign government leasing space in Donald Trump's most valuable building. No one knows about it. And there doesn't seem to be any clear business purpose for this lease. But we do know that it connects a foreign government to the White House. Well, that's, and, that's that last part, I think, is important for people to understand. You know, you're looking for transactions that have no apparent business purpose. Isn't that like something that, you know, I mean, I think that's a point to to hone in on. How does that change the nature of those payments in, in your eyes, in your perspective? Well, you know, let's say that the office had been buzzing with activity and there have been a lot of people there. You know, you could make the argument that, you know, they just needed a big office space. And, uh, in San Francisco. In San Francisco. And, you know, Trump happens to be a landlord there. And, you know, it was just sort of a coincidental thing. You know, another important thing is that the Trump team has made the argument that when foreign governments pay him, for instance, like to rent hotel rooms at at the Trump Hotel in D.C., that, you know, this is just it's standard business, you know, that that the foreign government sure might pay him money, but they're getting a hotel room in exchange is a value for value exchange, is the term that they use. You know, here, what's the value that the Qataris are getting? You know, they, they don't even list the address of this office on their website. There's no, there's no, if you wanted to find the Qatar Investment Authority in San Francisco, you wouldn't be able to find it. So it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense from a business perspective, which, which makes it a whole lot more suspicious from a political perspective. No, I, I, I think that that's great to point out because people go, well, why is it a big deal that he's taking this money in from these, these companies? Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about Cutter's relationship with America and, and what happened early in Donald's Trump term? Because I think that there's a little bit of motivation inside of that story. Sure. So, you know, Cutter is a U.S. ally. And so, of course, are other countries in the, in the Middle East. Qatar is feuding with some of the other U.S. allies in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia. And sometime around the time that Trump was elected and took office, the Saudis went and showed up at the Trump International Hotel in D.C. and spent $270,000 there. And Trump, as his first trip overseas in office, goes to Saudi Arabia. So he's talking with the leaders there who explained to him that they are concerned that Qatar, another U.S. ally, is funding terrorists. And, so and they're not the first surprised. persons to have expressed that concern. No, no, absolutely not. Several other countries are saying the same thing. And so Trump seems to buy this argument. And he comes back to the U.S. and he says publicly, you know, that Qatar is funding terrorists. And, you know, everyone's sort of like, whoa, you know, you're talking about a U.S. ally making a charge that, although a lot of other Middle Eastern countries have made, is certainly not like, uh, you know, a, a clearly true thing, nor is it something that, that you know, most of the international community believes. And so, so Trump says it, and, you know, he says, well, you know, I've got to shake things up. You know, foreign policy, as we were doing it, doesn't work. He sort of explains this move in that vain. And, you know, then in sometime after early 2018 is when the Qataris come in and start leasing this office space in California. And Trump's position 
on the Qataris, then does a total 180. He invites the Emir of Qatar back to the United States, to the Oval Office, in fact. Emir and he's sitting there. Yeah, exactly. And there, he's sitting there with him, and he says, you know, I want to thank you for all of the work that you've done to uh, combat funding of terrorists. So they're taking the exact opposite approach and stance that he <laughs> takes at the start of the presidency. And the Emir of Qatar basically like nods on. He's like, I just want to be clear about one thing. We were never funding terrorists, you know? And Trump's kind of like, okay, okay. And, and then about a year after that, Trump invites him back along with a lot of other people from Qatar to Washington. And they have this big dinner in, of all places, a room called the Cash Room inside the Treasury Department. Well, we know that's States. all he's thinking about, probably. So that makes perfect <laughs> sense. <laughs> this, is, this is where the United States used to store its gold and its silver, you know, back in the day. So they have this elaborate dinner there, and Secretary Mnuchin stands up, Secretary of the Treasury, and he says, "You know, this room is such a fitting uh, testament to the security and economic partnership between our two countries." And then Trump stands up to give his own toast and he's looking at the Qatari delegation he says I just want you to know how much we appreciate the investments that you've made here in the United States and so you put all of those things together the empty office space the abrupt 180 in U.S. policy and and isn't there a Kushner angle to this as well I mean the (laughs) the saga of of 666 Fifth Avenue I think captivated people because not only did it involve somebody in the White House, but this was like the white elephant of the one of the two biggest white elephants of the, the 2008 real estate crash. Uh, the other being uh, Stuyvesant Village, where you had these mega, mega transactions based on mega projections yep. for uh, vast sums of money. And Jared Kushner was coming due on like a billion dollars worth of debt. And nobody wanted to bail him out of this white elephant. I mean, it. It harks back to some other white elephant transactions at certain casinos that certain people installed giant white elephants in front of named Trump, (laughs) Taj Mahal. But in this case, there's a big cutter angle to this. And and I don't think that this has really gotten out there. I mean, can you tell our our listeners a little about that? So basically what happened was Brookfield, which is a large real estate firm, ended up basically bailing out the Kushners on this deal that they had that was in such trouble. They paid $1.3 billion for a long-term lease on the building, which would then give Brookfield control of it, and it would revert back to the Kushner family in 100 years or something like that. The arm of it that purchased it is is called Brookfield Property Partners. That was an investor in the fund that, that ultimately made the purchase. And one of the largest shareholders of Brookfield Property Partners was, again, the Qatar Investment Authority. So it's it's a little bit, and I want to be kind of clear here, it's it's not that that direct. It's not like the Qataris were just straight up bailing out Jared Kushner. They did not pay him one point three billion dollars. But now, didn't they, they tell? Did, didn't the Intercept reported that they were asked for half a billion dollars and they said no, on business terms, like they were just approached like any other business deal at some point. Yeah, well, that's that. That's also true. <laughs> so that was that was before this Brookfield deal that they were trying to raise money all over the world to do different plans on 666 Fifth Avenue. 
and ended up coming into contact with a lot of, you know, funds with entanglements in foreign countries. So there are, the point though, is that there are a lot of financial connections between Qatar and the Trump administration, you know, at the time that Qatar basically gets the the U.S. to uh, change back from a policy that was was very threatening to to the country. Well, the reason I dug in on this one nation, besides that I've done a lot of reporting on these guys, too, is that it's it's important to give a single example so people can really wrap their heads around how an, a, a nation of 330,000 people. I mean, we're talking about a country with the population of the Bahamas is getting these kinds of audiences in the White House. I mean, you know, a U.S. city with 330,000 people doesn't have this kind of wealth. <laughs> yeah, it's money. <laughs> a U.S. city with 330,000 people doesn't have the money that Qatar has. Right. And I mean, just having reported on them before, how many threat letters did they send you? <laughs> no, they didn't send any threat letters. I reached out to them about all of this, and they basically just declined to comment on the lease. And Bornado, Trump's partner in the building, also declined to comment. The White House said these are all Trump questions for the Trump Organization. And then the Trump Organization did not respond to requests for comment. So uh, wait, wait. The Trump Organization did not respond for requests to comment about what? Like one request about, or? Well, no. I mean, about this matter and multiple requests, and also several other matters. You know, I sent them a very, very detailed email laying out financial information and what that all meant before publication of the book. And although they've engaged with me a lot on, you know, previous reporting that I've done at Forbes, they elected not to engage for the reporting of the book. Do you think sometimes that they look at you as their outside financial analysis uh, analyst? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that they might have uh, words that I can't say on your program for me that do not, that oh, are a little oh, no, bit less you can terrible say those than, words. This than, is on than the internet. outside financial analysts. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious on that vein though, have you actually gotten, did you get any threat letters while, while reporting out this book? Cause it's very extensive. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of questions to a lot of very powerful people. I'm just curious as a reporter, we get those. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely received them. You know, for instance, lawyers for Wilbur Ross, you know, reach out both to me uh, and to, the publisher, you know, very uh, strong statements about how they were trying to, you know, stop publication of the book. Of course, you know, Wilbur Ross, Wilbur Ross did not answer lots of other questions that I had. They just, you know, wanted to come in and make a strong statement. But, you know, on the Wilbur Ross front, I think that one of the things that gets lost in a lot of the reporting about, you know, Trump's businesses and his ethical uh, entanglements are that you know, this created sort of a trickle-down effect across the U.S. government, where, you know, why would the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, be super concerned about ethics if his boss, the president, you know, clearly wasn't super concerned about ethics? And so you see these ethical issues, whether it's Wilbur Ross or Tom Price or, you know, across all the all of the departments. Chris you know, Collins. EPA, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, Scott through, Pruitt. I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can uh, you can just go through Carl Icahn. Yeah, Ryan Zinke. I mean, a lot of these guys, David Shulkin, you know, they all left, you know, amid scandal. And, you know, I think that that is really a part of the story here. Leadership matters and leadership influences people below you. And when, when Trump decided to bring his business into the White House, 
other businesses followed. So how does all of this intersect with the big story that dropped on Sunday, just in time for publication of your book? They were like, well, it's <laughs> safe from Dan, so we can let this stuff out <laughs> uh, about tr Donald Trump's taxes. I mean, let's let's start with the, the bottom line, which is that the man pays $750 a year when he pays taxes, which based on the gigantic refund he's taken, effectively, he didn't pay any. He paid some taxes between 20, 2000 and 2015. Then he got it all refunded. So, I mean, do you see that in reporting about business? Do you see that as normal at all? Or is that just a little bit extreme even for Donald Trump? Well, it's not normal, but there are certainly, you know, billionaires make efforts to, and successful business people make efforts to limit their tax bill. That's, uh, you know, very clear. And real estate tycoons in particular have been successful at figuring out how to make it look like, even when they're making money, make it look to the IRS like they're losing a lot of money. You don't have to go very far for an example. I mean, you know, Jared Kushner also reportedly paid, you know, no or little taxes for several years. So this does happen, but the consistency of it is certainly unusual. You know, billionaires might not pay 35% income taxes, but, you know, you would, most of them ended up paying, you know, maybe 20% or something like that. So, and that makes a big difference on large numbers, that, that gap. But to get all the way to zero is, is certainly unusual. You know, I think that what the Times story did a brilliant job of reporting and analyzing is, you know, we already know what the operations of Trump's businesses produce in terms of profit. You know, we can see the net operating our, income. Exactly. You're talking about the net, net operating, operating income. Yeah. Right. And what we can see, you know, on documents that are filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission that his buildings, you know, Trump Tower, 40 Wall Street, 1290 Avenue in America, 555 California. And this is from lenders, by the way, right? Mostly from, from lenders. lenders. Right. Yeah. From lenders, some from his partners. But, you know, we can see that these buildings produce enormous operating profits. And the amazing thing is then taking those numbers and turning them into either no profits or huge losses on a tax filing. And that is the, uh, you know, big takeaway and breakthrough in the reporting that the Times accomplished here is showing how you can take a business that's so valuable, that does turn out a lot of profit, and make it look to the IRS like it's losing a lot of money. It's not well, that it's broke. It's that, that, that is a huge revelation, but, but let's right. take it a step further. When a real estate developer or Donald Trump or whomever, but you know, in this particular case, we were talking about Trump. When Donald Trump takes advantage of the tax code, to turn his, you know, gobstopping money-making properties into cash losers in the eyes of the IRS, doesn't that mean that he's exercising a tax preference? And that means that, in effect, the American taxpayer is subsidizing his businesses through tax preferences. Well, if you're if you're paying zero dollars in taxes, you know, then there's no question that you're getting subsidized. <laughs> I mean, you know, taxes pay for things that every business uses, and Trump does pay some taxes. You know, he pays property taxes and that sort of stuff. But not, you know, to pay that little in federal income tax, yeah, means that you're, you know, you're not paying the share of, of, your, of your income that most people would expect that you would be. Well, I mean, there were years where he paid more money to foreign governments than he did to the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
and <laughs> in years that foreign governments paid him more money uh, than he paid the IRS. So, so I guess that's America first. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, it's it's been my pleasure having you on the program. And can you tell our listeners, uh, first of all, where they can find White House Inc., how Donald Trump turned the presidency into a business, and share your, your Twitter handle and any other website creds that they can use to catch up with you? Yeah, of course. You can buy the book on Amazon or at local independent bookstores or at Barnes & Noble or wherever you might find books. And my Twitter handle is at DanAlexander21. Well, Dan, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on the pod today. Thank you. I want to thank Dan Alexander for joining us on the show. You can follow him at DanAlexander21 on Twitter. Thanks again to our producer, Grant Stern, for doing the interview. You can follow him at Grant Stern. You can visit our website at DworkinReport.com for dozens of other episodes with fascinating people that we've interviewed. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. Onward!